Um, welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about anxiety. This episode is inspired by some of the engagements I've been having on my Instagram at the moment, just generally getting more questions about anxiety and people asking for more research or more help and support around um, some of the anxiety they are experiencing. And it probably comes as no surprise to you that anxiety and other mood disorders can go hand in hand with chronic fatigue. You may have heard me say on the podcast many times before that when we're looking at chronic fatigue, there's so many different mechanisms involved that contribute to a state of low energy. And the same mechanisms which are contributing to poor energy production could also be contributing to symptoms of low mood or changes in mood. And additionally, when we don't have energy, it's difficult for us to regulate our mood. Very often, it's not uncommon for people who experience chronic fatigue or, or chronic illness generally to struggle with their mental health. So what I'd like to talk about in this podcast today is just some of the things that we can think of when it comes to supporting anxiety. I'll talk a little bit about what anxiety is and some of the anxiety disorders. And then I'll talk about how we can start to unpick or unpack the web of different mechanisms that could be contributing to anxiety, as well as the acknowledgement that anxiety can have a physiological basis where there are physiological imbalances. It can also be provoked due to psychological stress. And again, just singing from the same song sheet that I sing from often in this podcast is for many people, it's a combination. We've got this sort of spectrum of mind-body work along to very physical, physiological imbalances and you know sometimes we get people who are all the way over on one side of the spectrum where a lot of the challenges are more psychological or um, nervous system based shall we say and then on the other side of the spectrum we have people who have a lot of physical imbalances which are creating their symptoms and their health experience and then we've got people in the middle who are maybe experiencing a little bit of that psychological nervous system strain and then a little bit of physiological imbalances. And the two kind of feed each other as well. So when the body is under stress and strain, that's going to have a physiological impact. And a physiological impact will be a stressor on the body as well. So I kind of think of that snake eating its tail where things are going a little bit round and round in circles. And we, we need to kind of intervene and interrupt the cycle and, and start to create different patterns within the system. So this is what can make this work incredibly complex. Sometimes it's hard to know what is causing what. And I often just recommend that you just start somewhere. You just start somewhere that makes sense to you, that feels right to you, that doesn't feel overwhelming to you. And that's what this podcast is all about, just to help you have a little bit more education, have a little bit more understanding of the bigger picture so you can make those decisions about how you support yourself day to day. Kind of do feel like I've gone on on a little bit of a tangent now, but I'm going to stop myself there. We're going to dive into the proper episode in a moment. 
But before I do that, just a request, if you haven't already, make sure you leave a review for the podcast. I think you can leave five stars on Spotify. You can leave five stars on iTunes. Make sure you're following the podcast to get updates when new episodes are released. They usually every Friday and they say take a holiday and share this podcast with someone you think may it may help today. I'm ever grateful for all the people who reach out to me and tell me that the podcast is helping them. So we want to spread the love, spread the information, help more people with chronic illness and chronic fatigue experiences. And you are part of creating that web and part of getting this information out to more people. So I'd really appreciate it if you just take a moment now um, to do one or any of those things. But let's go into the episode where I'll start by talking about what is anxiety. So to a certain extent, anxiety is a natural and common human emotion. We all will experience anxiety in our day-to-day lives and emotional experiences can be rewards or warnings. And in the case of anxiety, it could be a warning. It's a fear response, often associated with feelings of unease or worry. So anxiety, to a certain extent, can be a very appropriate response when there is a perceived threat, when there are various things going on in our life and there's a certain amount of intensity. If you're going through a transition, whether that is changing a job or changing a relationship or buying or selling a house or going through some sort of big life transition, it's natural to have some worry or unease or fear about the situation. And normal levels of anxiety can actually be beneficial in the short term. So they can help us stay alert, they can help us stay focused, and they can help us prepare and mobilize the energy in our body so that we're ready to react and defend ourselves against potentially dangerous situations, whether that dangerous situation is a a physical need to fight or flee, but also just the energy that allows us to mobilize ourselves so that we can take an action, whether that action is signing the divorce papers or moving home or moving cities or whatever the big challenge is or big transition is in your life, we need energy to complete the actions required. And therefore, anxiety is an energy mobilizing response. And that can be helpful in the short term. However, when anxiety becomes excessive and it persists, and there's no kind of obvious immediate threat, it can become a mental health disorder. And here I'll also say, I don't consider myself a mental health expert. Obviously, I'm trained in somatic experiencing and I work with the somatic body, shall I say, when I'm working with my clients. I work with the nervous system when I'm working with my clients, but I would not call myself a mental health expert. And therefore, it is really important that if you are experiencing excessive amounts of anxiety, that you do go and see your doctor you do get a referral, you do potentially get a diagnosis because when day-to-day normal levels of anxiety spill over into your life, 
and they start to cause more disruption than is reasonable and more dysfunction than is reasonable, we need to make sure we're going through the appropriate channels to get the support that we need. That also being said, I'll also say that if you are experiencing a chronic illness, a chronic illness that is impacting your job or your career, impacting your relationships and family life, impacting your finances, and you know maybe impacting your ability to finish a degree or to study or to fulfill your life's purpose, that's a lot of reasons to feel anxious. So just the very nature of the changes in life that come with experience of chronic illness are going to bring up a lot of anxiety. And that might not necessarily mean that you have an anxiety disorder. That might actually be a very appropriate response to the transition of becoming unwell or having an illness experience. And it's really important, though, that as we move through this illness experience, however it's unfolding for you, that you have ways that you can support yourself. And I'll, I'll touch on those briefly today. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of somatic experiencing, given it's something that I'm trained in, but there are many different ways that we can support ourselves. Going into this idea of anxiety disorders, I'm just going to touch on these very briefly. It's not my place to diagnose this. It's my place to diagnose anything within my scope of practice. So I'm just going to kind of mention some of the various anxiety disorders so that you can become aware of what they are. Maybe you know you already have one of these, but it's something that you could then take to your appropriate healthcare professional and have a discussion. So the first one is general anxiety disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. And this involves chronic and excessive worry about aspects of your life, even when there is no apparent reason or concern. Obviously, if you're experiencing a chronic illness, I would say that that's a reason to be concerned. There's panic disorder. So panic disorder is characterized by sudden and intense episodes of fear, often accompanied by physical symptoms like rapid heartbeat, sweating, and shortness of breath. There's social anxiety disorder. So this is when people experience intense fear and avoidance of social situations due to the fear of being judged or perhaps feeling embarrassed. Phobias are also classed as an anxiety disorder, and this can involve an intense fear of a particular object or situation, for example, heights or spiders or snakes or something like that. Then we have obsessive compulsive disorder, which involves recurrent and intrusive thoughts, which are obsessions, and repetitive behaviors or mental acts, um, which are compulsions that a person feels driven to perform. We have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, that's probably familiar terminology for many. And this is after a person experiences a traumatic event, they may experience ongoing symptoms like flashbacks, nightmares, or severe anxiety. There may also be something called separation anxiety, which is commonly seen in children, but it can affect adults and pets. It involves an excessive fear of being separated from our attachment figures. And then finally, agoraphobia, which is the fear of being in situations where escape might be difficult or help might not be available in the case of a, a panic attack. So it's important to note that anxiety disorders are medical conditions and not simply a matter of being overly nervous or stressed, although being nervous and stressed will probably increase feelings of anxiety acutely. 
even if someone does have one of these eight anxiety disorders. And anxiety disorders can significantly impact a person's daily life, their relationships, and their overall sense of well-being. So just to say again, if you are struggling with an anxiety disorder or you think you may have one of these disorders, it's really important to seek help with an appropriately trained healthcare professional that can help you in terms of diagnosis, maybe offer referrals to appropriately trained medical health specialists, offer medication if that's appropriate, and ultimately help in the creation of a treatment plan which is appropriate for your needs. My scope of practice as a functional medicine, nutritional therapist, and somatic experiencing practitioner is to work more on rebalancing the physiology and supporting the nervous system, but there will be cases where we also do need medical intervention alongside the work that I'm able to do. So let's talk about anxiety and chronic illness. Mood disorders are so much more than just a neurotransmitter imbalance. So if you are experiencing anxiety, it's so much more than just not having enough GABA, for example, which is our calming neurotransmitter. Mood disorders can be a byproduct of the complex web of physiological imbalances that we may see in specific health conditions and psychological strain, because as I've said already, being unwell is inherently straining on one's psychology. And for this reason, many people who experience chronic illness will struggle with mental health and the same physiological mechanisms and psychological stresses may also be contributing to symptoms like fatigue or brain fog and impacting mood. So where I'd like to go with the rest of this podcast is to just help you understand the mechanisms better. A huge part of what we do in my practice is we're not just giving a pill for an ill or a supplement for an ill in terms of managing symptoms. We're looking at the bigger picture. We're looking at the individual. We're looking at what mechanisms are happening for this person specifically and how do we choose interventions, whether that's dietary changes, supplements or lifestyle changes that are going to have the biggest impact on the most of these mechanisms that are creating the symptoms. As always, information I'm going to share with you is not to replace medical advice and it's best that this information that you learn about in this podcast and any of my podcasts is implemented alongside the support of an appropriately trained healthcare team, whatever that looks like for you. In the case of anxiety, the first thing we want to kind of establish is, is this psychological or is this physiological or is it both? And I've spoken already about that continuum between we have some people who are more on the mind-body, psychological side, some people who are more way over on the other side where there's a lot of physical things driving their symptoms, and some people are in the middle. Every case is different. The majority of people who work with me are usually a combination of the two, but every case is different and different cases will have different needs. So from a physiological perspective, we can start to experience anxiety, perhaps if there are what we would call neurochemical imbalances. So this may be imbalances in neurotransmitters specifically. Because of the close relationship between hormones, like sex hormones, and our neurotransmitters, sometimes hormone imbalances will be driving neurotransmitter imbalances. And any woman who's ever had PMS will, will know this to be true. A lot of women going through perimenopause will know this to be true. 
then we can also have neurochemistry is really impacted by thyroid function. And so people who tend to be more hyperthyroid may experience increased anxiety. And when we're looking at thyroid conditions, often even if someone is hypo, so low thyroid, sometimes if that's autoimmune-based and there's sort of flares in autoimmunity, they can also go through short periods of time of being hypothyroid and that would produce anxiety. Or if they're being over-medicated, that could also produce anxiety as well. Blood sugar imbalances are another reason for neurochemical imbalances, which is why I'm so passionate about blood sugar control. And I'll talk more about that today. Neuroinflammation will drive neurochemical imbalances and gut-brain access disorders, um, which kind of also leads into things like brain injury and be a cause mood disorders or anxiety disorders. Neurodevelopmental diseases can also be a cause mood disorders. And then sometimes we can also have neurological autoimmunity, which is driving mood disorders as well. I'll talk a little bit more about that a bit later in this episode. So those are some of the physiological mechanisms that can contribute to anxiety. And if that just it sounds like, whoa, that's a lot, don't worry, I'm going to break things down a little in a way that's a little bit more usable and applicable to your unique situation in a moment. But in the case of a psychological mood disorder, there may be psychological stress that is contributing. And if you're experiencing a lot of stress in your life, then feeling anxious is a natural response. We've kind of already touched on that. And I've touched on already that chronic illness is inherently stressful. And to a certain extent, we kind of need to like sit with ourselves and be like, okay, let's just acknowledge that there's a lot of stress going on as I'm moving through this illness experience. But could there also be some physiological mechanisms that are contributing to the way that I'm feeling? And how could I address those in a way that even though I do have this psychological side of things happening for me, Maybe if I address some of the physiological imbalances, that would really help to take the pressure off of the more psychological side of things. And that's where I'm going to spend the most time in terms of this specific episode today. I'll touch on the nervous system pieces a little bit. So once we've kind of weighed up that this is psychological or physiological or both, the next question we want to ask is, how long has this been happening? So for example, were you actually quite anxious before you became unwell and the the chronic illness has now exacerbated the anxiety? Or is this something that's happened recently for you? Is this something that's intermittent and relapsing? Has this been going on a really, really long time? Or is this something that has actually been lifelong for you? So ultimately, anxiety is the consequence of an overactivation of amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. And so the goal in clinical practice for someone like myself is to work out why. Why is this amygdala being activated to the point that this person feels anxious all the time? And if we can identify the mechanisms impacting the anxiety, and we can address those mechanisms, we can hopefully see an improvement in symptoms and in mood as a whole. So how long someone has experienced their symptoms gives us a clue in terms of identifying the potential mechanisms that could be involved. So for example, if someone has recently felt anxious, I might be thinking, is this a hormone imbalance? Is this a problem with this person's circadian rhythm? Perhaps there's a microbiome, a gut imbalance that's that's a new thing that's come up. 
maybe there's some nutrient imbalances, maybe there's this person has now become more sedentary, they're not moving as much, maybe this person's under a lot of stress and they've maladapted to the stress that they're under. If the pattern of the anxiety is sort of intermittent, it's like okay and then it comes back and then it's okay and then it comes back, we may think of hormonal imbalances, especially if there's a pattern with the cycle. We may think of thyroid dysfunction. We may also consider autoimmunity or neuroinflammation, which is being triggered on and off by certain things that the person is eating or doing in their life or not getting enough sleep or periods of stress. Then if this has been chronic, we want it starts to get more and more serious the longer it's been going on and depending on the pattern. So chronic anxiety could be a brain injury. It could be neurodegeneration. It could be some undiagnosed metabolic condition. And if it's been lifelong, then it could be down to a genetic disorder, some sort of neurodevelopmental disorder, or perhaps a permanent brain injury. So the longer someone has experienced a mood disorder, in this case anxiety, the worse the prognosis. And in some cases, for example, those lifelong mood disorders, they may be unresponsive to interventions, but we can do a lot to improve the person's stress resiliency and support symptoms so that overall they have a better quality of life. And sometimes that's, that's the best we can do, but it's definitely worth doing. So once we've thought, is this physiological or is this purely psychological or is it a combination of both? And you know, maybe how much is one, how much is the other? How long has it been going on for? What are the potential mechanisms involved? Then we want to think, how do we manage this? And the management of anxiety disorders starts with supporting the brain and it starts with improving stress resiliency. And there's so much information out now on the nervous system. It's such a popular buzz topic, especially in the chronic illness community, about polyvagal theory and all of that. We don't only improve stress resiliency by supporting the nervous system. We support stress resiliency with blood sugar control, with making sure we're sleeping, we're getting enough sleep and that sleep is good quality. We improve stress resiliency by being able to tolerate movement and having a movement routine and supporting the nervous system and reducing stimulation and stress in our life, as well as optimizing our digestive health and the diversity of our microbiome. And then we can also, in addition to all of this, add in supplements to support anxiety. But it's really important that the underlying mechanism of the anxiety gets addressed. Because what may happen is the supplements may work in the short term. But if we don't address the underlying mechanism, eventually the effects start to wear off and then we're back at square one again. And this can be the same for hormone replacement therapies. Sometimes when people take thyroid hormone replacement therapy or hormone replacement therapy for perimenopause. It works for a bit, but if the underlying mechanisms aren't addressed, maybe six months later, the symptoms return and then you still have work that you need to do. Not to say that these practices or these therapies aren't helpful, they are. We definitely want to use them as needed and we want to identify the underlying mechanisms and address those mechanisms for lifelong health. So in terms of management, anxiety disorders, I'm going to go through this list of things in a little bit more detail. So the brain, blood sugar, sleep, movement, nervous system, digestive health, and supplements. So we'll start with the brain. 
The brain is just one of my favorite things to talk about. I don't know why. I think it's because so many of my symptoms were like brain fog, brain related, that I just find the whole brain health side of things very interesting and very impactful and often neglected as well, especially when I'm taking on clients who've worked with other practitioners. It's not been a lot of attention to brain health. So one of my one of the most important things to know is that an unhealthy brain cannot dampen the sympathetic nervous system. So we learn a lot about the importance of the vagus nerve and vagal tone, and I've spoken about this in other episodes, and you've probably come across it already in your own research. But what nobody talks about is we need a healthy brain to dampen the sympathetic nervous system, not just vagal tone. So if we have increased sympathetic tone because the brain is not healthy enough to dampen the sympathetic responses, then we can get an increased production in adrenal hormones, epinephrine, norepinephrine. We can also get an increase in neuroinflammation, so brain inflammation. And so here, when we're thinking about anxiety, we're thinking about maybe brain injury, neurological autoimmunity. These are things we may want to consider in terms of brain health and, and what we do to support these. But chronic stress traumas, they can impact the health of the brain. Mold illness can impact the health of the brain and other infections. And just recently, I learned that mold illness is very similar to having a mild brain injury because of the way that the mold mycotoxins impact the health of the brain. So I think that's why I'm so interested in brain health is because I really do feel that my mold experience impacted my brain and something I really have to continuously keep on top of in terms of how I care for myself. So I've done previous podcasts on neuroinflammation. I've done previous podcasts on brain health. I should have perhaps come to this episode a little bit more prepared in terms of being able to tell you what the, the different episodes are. But if you scroll through the feed, I'm sure you'll find them. I think they're around about the 50s. You'll find my podcast on neuroinflammation and brain health. But a brief summary of things that you may want to consider in terms of the health of the brain is if there's autoimmunity, for example, specifically, there's autoimmune antibodies known as GAD65, GAD65, and these may impact the cerebellum in the brain and the basal ganglia. And these are two regions of the brain that are involved in dampening sympathetic tone. So if you have a poorly managed or undiagnosed autoimmune condition, and these antibodies are attacking the tissue in the brain, and these areas of the brain are no longer working as well because they're inflamed or degenerating, that's going to impact your ability to dampen sympathetic tone and to modulate the amygdala, and hence we get that overactivation of the amygdala and we get anxiety. And GAD65 specifically has been associated with OCD as well. The next thing we may want to think about is blood sugar, which, is, which I'll speak about in a bit more detail, but generally we need to get energy to the brain. We don't want our blood sugar to be too high or too low because if it's too high, energy is not getting into the brain cells. If it's too low, energy is not getting into the brain cells. So we need optimal blood sugar, which is something I've spoken about extensively. We also need blood flow to the brain, which means we need good circulation. We need good blood pressure. We need to make sure we don't have anemia. We need to make sure we're sleeping and not just sleeping, but we're sleeping in a rhythm. Our circadian rhythms are really important when it comes to the health of the brain. 
Some people may need to go on a ketogenic diet. They may need to remove things like gluten and dairy and other possible autoimmune triggers. We also need exercise and movement to support the health of the brain. So these are things I'll touch on in a little bit more detail, but just to kind of get a general sense of the things that we need for the health of the brain. And there are particular activities that exacerbate your symptoms of anxiety. This can give insight as to whether particular regions of the brain are being activated or impacted. So for example, if you experience increased anxiety in crowds, this could signal dysfunction of the vestibular cerebellum. If you have anxiety with high-pitched sounds and bright lights, this could signal imbalances within the midbrain. And the frontal circuits of the brain are influenced by social interactions, critical thinking, or executive function like planning, organizing, time management. So if those tasks increase anxiety, then perhaps the frontal circuits are being impacted. So mood disorders that are triggered by these activities can suggest that there may be unhealthy mitochondria in the cells of the limbic system. And therefore, the kind of clinical goals would be to reduce inflammation in the brain and give appropriate support to the mitochondria, appropriate stimulation to support neuroplasticity. And in doing so, that helps to regenerate the health of the mitochondria in those specific regions of the brain. I would say here, if you think that your brain has been impacted, and for many of us with chronic illness, it has been to a certain extent. But if you if this feels like quite a big thing and quite a serious thing and your symptoms are quite aggressive, it's really worthwhile to work with someone who can help you with all of this because the quality of your brain health will determine the quality of your life. And it's worth doing everything possible to support the health of your brain. So the next thing on the list is, in terms of supporting stress resiliency, the next thing I have is managing blood sugar. And managing blood sugar is also going to be really important for the health of your brain. And stabilizing mood requires stabilized blood sugar. So when blood sugar drops too low, there can be a surge in adrenal hormones, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine. That activates the amygdala in the brain. It increases anxiety. So low blood sugar increases anxiety. When blood sugar is too high, this means glucose isn't getting into the cells of the brain and the overall brain health and mitochondrial function is poor. There just isn't energy available for a healthy brain. That's going to impact the down-regulating of the sympathetic signaling. Additionally, we also need proper insulin signaling, which means we need to have good insulin sensitivity to activate the production of neurotransmitters. So if insulin is surging because we just ate a high carbohydrate meal, or if blood sugar is poorly balanced, that's going to negatively impact our ability to make our neurotransmitters like serotonin, like GABA, like dopamine, like acetylcholine. That's going to have an impact on mood generally and anxiety potentially specifically. So people with high blood sugar may still experience low blood sugar and vice versa. Sometimes people will eat a meal, blood sugar goes up really high, but then it can also crash really low. Sometimes people have low blood sugar and then they eat and then blood sugar goes up too high and then it comes back low again. So I've done an episode on hypoglycemia. I've done an episode on blood sugar generally. So I'm not going to go into this in too much detail, but just to say generally, if you're someone who's more prone to high blood sugar, you will probably be experiencing 
lower energy after meals. And in which case it's important that you plan your meals around protein and you make sure there's enough fat and fiber with each meal and you limit the portion sizes specifically of carbohydrates so that you have stable energy after a meal, no energy crashes. Ideally, you want to avoid things like fruits and refined sugars. You want to avoid stimulants. You want to manage stress, get adequate sleep, all the basics. And if you can, fast for 12 hours overnight. Someone who's more prone to low blood sugar will probably have lower energy, eat a meal, and then feel back to normal again. So the goal for this person is to eat frequently enough that they don't get the low energy before meals, that their energy is stable across the day. And just like the person with high blood sugar need to eat enough protein, need to eat enough fat and fiber with meals, you want to eliminate fruits and refined sugars that could potentially cause a peak and then a trough, avoid stimulants, manage stress, get sleep, and in some cases support the adrenal glands and eat as often as necessary to maintain blood sugar stability. In some cases for people with hypoglycemia, A ketogenic diet may also be required to achieve the the optimal blood sugar balance. So the next thing that's going to be important for mood disorders and anxiety specifically is sleep. Sleep is when the brain regenerates. And when we don't sleep, our brain gets inflamed, our neurochemistry becomes unstable, and we experience heightened sympathetic responses. So it's not just about how much we sleep, but it's about sleeping in a rhythm which means that we go to bed at the same time each day and we wake at the same time each day. And that means we need to be able to fall asleep, stay asleep and wake feeling rested, which I appreciate is easier said than done. I've done a whole episode on sleep, which you can listen to. And I've also written blogs on sleep on my website. I've written blogs on circadian rhythm on my website. So what I will just say here is that sometimes when people aren't sleeping well, they can fall into this pattern of like sleeping in in the morning or perhaps napping in the day and then not being able to fall asleep at night. And the whole routine gets out of whack. So one of the things I work on I work on a lot with my clients is just getting that sort of going to bed at the same time each day, even if you can't sleep initially just having like an unwind routine and then going to bed at the same time and then getting up at the same time and getting light exposure on the eyes in the morning, whether that's sunlight or in the winter you're using a 10,000 lux light. And then if you are somebody who can nap, you can nap in the day, but some people do need to avoid napping so they build up sleep pressure for the evening. And that's something that we would want to assess on a case-by-case basis. But it's really important if mood and anxiety is a big challenge for you. You cannot get out of it without stabilizing your blood sugar and without getting your sleep in the appropriate rhythm. And sometimes those two go hand in hand because oftentimes people aren't sleeping well because their blood sugar is poorly regulated. And when their blood sugar improves, so does their sleep, although there can be a lot of nuance there as well. So the next thing is movement. And just like sleep, and blood sugar, movement is a must. It's not possible to recover from fatigue and mood disorders without a movement or exercise routine. There are so many ways in which movement creates changes in the biochemistry and physiology of the body that no medication or no supplement can surpass. So movement is really important for 
supporting the branching networks of our neurons. It helps our nerves grow. It improves our synapses. It makes the synapses more efficient. It reduces the risk of neurodegeneration. It helps us make more mitochondria for brain energy. Helps to modulate the immune system. It increases our growth hormone. Nitric oxide for blood flow to the brain. BDMF, which is really important for neuroinflammation and brain plasticity. It improves our insulin receptor sensitivity and increases our natural opioids and natural painkillers in the brain. But obviously the downside of movement is that it can be really tricky for people with chronic illness. It produces oxidative stress and many people experience post-exertional malaise and energy crashes when they move. So it's this cruel paradox between finding a movement routine, however big or however small, and doing enough and not doing too much. But it is absolutely essential if you want to make changes which are necessary for your long-term physical and mental health. So the general guidance that I give, and I've also created more resources around this on my blog and my podcast, is do whatever it is that allows you to recover and repeat the same the next day. And this could be something as small as some gentle stretches in bed, a five-minute walk around the house, around the block, or maybe some qigong or yoga, or maybe even more intense movement as your capacity builds. When you're working on your movement routine, it's important to be structured and strategic and systemized and do everything in a, in a kind of very well-managed way. But there's still be trial and error. And so you have to be prepared to make mistakes. You have to be prepared to learn from those mistakes. And in certain situations, we may need to get the brain healthier and improve the body's antioxidant systems before we can really get into a proper movement routine. And that was my experience in my own journey. Walking was okay, but there was a really long time where I couldn't get past doing anything more than walking. And it was only when I started to get my brain a little bit healthier and I started to improve my antioxidant systems through detoxing mold that I was then finally able to start moving forward with my exercise routine. And then when I moved forward with my exercise routine and I started to build up more strength and I started to make more mitochondria, then that really gave me more capacity in my life and things kind of snowballed from there. So as I said, it's probably beyond the scope of this episode to go into how to do that in detail, but just know that it's important and you can refer to other resources on my blog and on my website to get a little bit more understanding of how you can support yourself there. You can just go to my website, which is anamarsh.co.uk, Either just go to the blog or go to the podcast and in the search box, just type exercise or movement and everything available should come up for you. So then the next thing is supporting the nervous system and stress management. So a big part of supporting anxiety is supporting stress resiliency through supporting the nervous system. This means that we have tools which can increase vagal tone, which I've already touched on very briefly and tools that help us to down-regulate the sympathetic nervous system. And there are many ways we can support the nervous system. There's meditation, there's yoga, especially things like restorative yoga or yin yoga. As a yin yoga teacher, I used yin yoga a lot in my journey, and I've interviewed Charlotte Whiteman. She 
teaches beautiful restorative yoga classes for people with energy conditions. So you can find her interview on my podcast as well. Breathing exercises, cold showers, qigong, gargling, singing, chanting, mindfulness. These can all be helpful. We all need to be integrating these things into our day in a way that feels good and supportive, not like as a tick box where we just do the yoga, but we're dissociated the whole time. We want to really be connected with the practices that we're using and experience the benefit in the body at the time of doing them, not just think, oh, I did the yoga, but I dissociated for an hour, but at least I did the yoga. So as an advanced student of somatic experiencing at the time of recording this, somatic tools are my favorite, but I also appreciate that people find healing in different ways. So even with my one-on-one clients who are just working with me on the physiological side, even though I know I can offer them somatic experiencing, or even though I know I can offer them to do my nurturing resilience group program, I always let them choose. I always say, you know, what would help you? What would you like to do? So that people really do believe people need to advocate for themselves and make their own choices when it comes to healing. That I'm just here with these options available, whether people choose to take them or not. So it's it's beyond the scope of this blog to talk about this podcast, shall I say, to talk about this in more detail. But you can listen to some of the previous episodes. For example, I think it's episode nine, the nervous system and chronic fatigue. And then I also did an episode on somatic experiencing brain retraining and healing updates. And there's an episode also on somatic tools for chronic pain, all of which could be helpful as well for anxiety. So feel free to listen to any of those episodes to understand this aspect of healing a bit better. And then I also do a free workshop, which is the Getting to Know Your Nervous System workshop. So if nervous system work is very new to you, I always say to people, start with that workshop. You can either join the workshop live when I run it live, or you can catch the replay depending on what is available at the time. You can go to my website, just anamash.co.uk, go to the workshop section of the website, and you'll be able to register either for the live workshop or, or to catch the replay. And then I do have my Nurturing Resilience Group program, and I run a couple of cohorts a year which are live, but there's also the option to do the self-study course at, at any, any, any point in time and then upgrade to the live course when the next dates come out. So lots of options there for supporting the nervous system. But embodied nervous system support is going to be really important for managing anxiety. And when I say embodied, is the embodiment is feeling it working. So it's all very well doing a breathing exercise because you've been told that's what you should do. Or doing a yoga class because you've been told that's what you should do. Or gargling or singing or chanting. And we can go through the motions of doing these practices, but we actually want to attune and feel and experience that it's creating a physiological change in the body. And that's what it means to connect mind to body. It's not just going through the motions of the mind-body work, but experiencing the benefit as a felt sense in the body. Then we know we're doing the work. And if you need help with that, the Getting to Know Your Nervous System workshop is a perfect place to start. So then the final thing to touch on is digestive health. Digestive health and optimizing digestive health is the fifth way that we can encourage stress resiliency. 
And this is because the gut is often referred to as the second brain and many of our neurotransmitters are manufactured in the gut. So gut imbalances can lead to neurotransmitter imbalances. And so therefore it goes without saying that digestive health may be important for mood. And the gut, again, is another complex area. It goes beyond the scope of this episode to talk about all the ins and outs of the gut in more detail. But one of the most, in fact, most important things to be concerned about where mood is concerned is ensuring that you have a diversity of bacterial species in the gut. And this is encouraged by the diversity of plants in your diet, although I would say exception to the rules if you need to be on a carnivore diet for whatever reason. So something I often encourage my clients to do is something called a microbiome mashup. And the microbiome mashup is basically you go to the supermarket or the farmer's market or wherever you buy your veggies from or online shop, I guess, if you're ordering online. And you just buy a selection of different vegetables. I'd say at least 20 to different types more if you can. And you can use a food process to chop up the selection of vegetables into a very, very fine kind of like pulp. Mix them all together. So you've got 15 or 20 different types of veg all mixed up together. And then you can freeze this sort of vegetable pulp in jars or little packets in the freezer. And then each day you can remove some of this frozen vegetable matter, maybe just a taste tablespoon or a couple of tablespoons, blend it with a little bit of water and drink it like medicine. You could also add in things like chia seed, flax seed, hemp seed, psyllium husk. And the goal really is just to be getting a huge amount of diversity in terms of the plant fibers you're eating each day. You can obviously do this through dietary means. So I've probably spoken about this on the podcast before, but just combining lots of different ingredients into a salad, or maybe you cook a curry or stew and you're using lots of herbs and spices, really just aiming for diversity as much as possible. And the more restricted your diet, the more for, you know, maybe people need to avoid certain foods for certain reasons, then you need to be even more creative with how you enforce the diversity within your diet. And that's probably one of the best things that you can do in terms of your mood is ensure that you are having a diverse microbiome. So touched on so far when it comes to managing anxiety is supporting the health of the brain. We've also talked about balancing blood sugar, getting enough sleep, having a movement routine, working on the nervous system and supporting digestion. The final thing I'll just talk about before we wrap up is supplements for anxiety. And remember that supplements are supplementary to all of this other work. We want to address the physiological mechanisms. We want to address the psychological stresses and strains. And then if we need a little bit of help from supplements in the short term, we can use things like valerian root is probably a top pick, passion flower, L-theanine, magnesium, lemon bark, ginkgo biloba, ashwagandha, chamomile, hops. These are all options. Very often you can get products which have a combination of all of these. I quite like I often use L-theanine, lemon balm uh, for myself and, and recommend valerian root if you just don't know what else to take. Obviously, if you are taking any medications, you do need to check for interactions between supplements and your medications. So that brings me to the end of this very long episode on anxiety and, and hopefully all the information hasn't made you too anxious while you've been learning all of it. But the key to resolving anxiety disorders is identify the underlying mechanisms involved. 
So how much of this is psychological? How much of this is physiological? What are the physiological mechanisms? And what are the interventions we can take to have the greatest impact on the most systems? And that's what we've been through today. It's blood sugar, it's sleep, it's movement, it's digestive health, it's brain health, it's nervous system regulation. And in chronic illness and chronic fatigue specifically, anxiety can be a combination of both. So hold space for that. And if you do feel that you're really struggling with your mental health, just to reiterate, it's really important that you reach out to the appropriate healthcare providers, get a diagnosis if that's what is required, discuss medications with your doctor if that is required. And then, of course, our practice is open and you are more than welcome to reach out for more support in the areas I've talked about today, if that feels like the next step for you. And so that brings me to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next one.